the last of kind of four weeks of a lot of content and stuff. So you be, oh, you have different emotions in relation to that, but uh, <laughs> you'll be pleased to know that Good Friday represents a shift. So we'll be moving to much more kind of practical and grounded and applied and story-based stuff. But to, today is the last week that we kind of look at um, some, perhaps some new content and a lot of um, ideas. So apologies that it's been four weeks in a row, but um, bear with us because we think it's worthwhile. And after, after Easter, we'll have a series of weeks where we're just taking one uh, much smaller idea and trying to ground it in, in our lives, look at how the stuff that we've been talking about over the last three weeks and the stuff that I'll be talking about today applies to, um, to life, our life together and our lives individually. I'll just poke that $20 note in and I'll pray for, uh, pray for the offertory before we begin, pray for me, and pray particularly for you. Loving God, we thank you for the generosity of this community in so many different ways, for the people that set up and pack up, for the people that play music, um, for the people that take care of um, food on days that we have food, that uh, look after the the children in kids' church, um, for all the things that happen behind the scenes that... um, that you see but that we might not be aware of. Uh, but we thank you for uh, the money also that is that is generously given to this community and we pray that you might... Um, oh, yeah, in that one. Thanks, Sophie. Um, and we thank you for um, the work that it enables us to do here. Um, and I pray that you will help... Um, those of us who are on staff for this community to to always be mindful of the generosity of the people here and enabling us, freeing us up to have time to to pray, to reflect, to read, and um, such a privilege as well as a responsibility. And I pray that you help us to be aware of that. Um, and I pray that you'll honour what I say today, that you will... Uh, redeem it um, and make it something that that speaks into people's lives and is um, of benefit. And I pray that um, you might help everyone today to to see past what might not not be in this talk um, and to see it for what it is and to um, to find something in it of you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I'll just begin with a, a brief synopsis. It's funny that when you add the little synopses on, by the time you've got to week four of a series, you've got half your talk is just trying to recap. Um, I'll try to be quick. Unfortunately, uh, the ideas are quite dense, so if um, my recap seems inadequate, then um, yeah, listen back over the last three weeks um, 
I was suggesting to Greg before that he might like to listen to last week's talk while I'm talking today and then next week he can listen to this week's talk while we're doing whatever's being done and eventually we'll have a week off and then he'll catch up. So that's an option for you. So in the first week of this series, uh, Shane talked about the, the violent, wrathful understanding he grew up with of how um, Jesus' death worked to bring us peace with God and how um, in the work that he did um, with young people uh, in, in the church that he was working at in New Zealand, he, he started to find it harder and harder to see any kind of good news in, um, in the gospel that he was presenting to those young people as he was presenting it. And uh, so then in the second week, uh, Shane introduced us to the work of René Girard, and we've been talking about René Girard over the last three weeks. And his idea that um, what we see in the cross, the violent death of Jesus uh, and the way it represents scapegoating, was actually, this scapegoating practice was actually the means by which ancient cultures vented pent-up violence on something expendable in their community. Um, Children, slaves, minorities. And they did that to protect the community from outbreaks of, of potentially catastrophic violence and to restore peace. And Shane also pointed out that Gerard's ideas about sacrificial systems uh, alert us to the fact that that sacrificial systems pre-existed the one that we see in the Bible uh, and also were in the cultures all around the, uh, the children of Israel so that it wasn't just an invention by Yahweh, uh, something that, that Yahweh created ex nihilo, out of nothing, um, but that the scapegoating system of, of violence and sacrifice that, that Yahweh gave to his people was a variation on the sacrificial systems that were all around and that pre-existed that system. Um, and that that has enormous implications for how we understand that sacrificial system and how we read it. So, and last week, um, I looked at some of those implications, some of the effects it has when we realise that, that this is um, just one sacrificial system amongst many at the time. Because it kind of helps us to, to move past just being overwhelmed as we read the Old Testament, overwhelmed by the blood and the violence, um, to a place where we can start to see the amazing ways in which Israel's use of sacrifice diverges from those of the nations around it. I talked about a few different things. Um, I talked about the way that child sacrifice, which was part of, of all the surrounding sacrificial systems, was banned from the outset by Yahweh, as we see in Genesis 22 with the the story of the binding of Isaac. And we also see it in Exodus um, from the very beginning, God banning the sacrifice of children and the sacrifice of the firstborn. Um, and we also just talked about 
how the victims of sacrifice that in other sacrificial systems were made invisible, uh, denied a voice and seen as evil, deserving of their death, in the Old Testament um, started to to get a face um, and they started to get a voice. And these victims of violence in the Old Testament, as they received a voice, began to, to proclaim their innocence challenged their status as cursed by God uh, until in, in the book of Job and in the, um, the second part of Isaiah, we see God actively siding with the victims of violence, the victims of, of apparent curse and standing against the many who would condemn them as cursed. So today uh, we're going to, to move on to the New Testament um, and to Jesus and to talk about what Gerard says about uh, Jesus' death on the cross. Um, and we're going to start with uh, three, three quotes from Jesus himself. I'm going to get Ben to come up and read these for us. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been... I'm going to start that again. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all of the prophets that have been shed since the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you. This generation will be held responsible for it all. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. It's Matthew thirteen thirty five. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Thanks, Ben. So these are all um, the first two uh, um, passages, kind of parallel passages of Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees prior to his crucifixion. And Gerard considers these passages really important for our understanding of the crucifixion of Jesus um, because he thinks Jesus is using his confrontation with the Pharisees to to frame our understanding of of his death and to set us up for his death. Um, So what is Jesus trying to do Um, we just we need to be reminded at this point that um, the situation that the Old Testament and Jesus faced is that this equation which we've looked at over the last few weeks that um, that peace is restored through the sacrifice of a scapegoat um, that that is increasingly being challenged through the Old Testament through the the victims being get a, given a voice. Um, 
So questions have been raised about each part of this equation. Um, and again, I'm sorry if some of this up here is unclear to you if you haven't been here in, in the last few weeks, but it, if, you, if you listen back, it will make more sense. Um, the equation is really talking about is the peace created by sacrifice really holy and good? Is it just? Um, is the scapegoat really guilty? Is the whole religious system of sacrifice telling us the truth or is it ultimately um, a lie? So before we return to those passages and before we look directly at the cross, I want to just look at, um, at a couple of aspects of Jesus' ministry and how they also frame his death because I think this will help us when we look at the cross to understand it more clearly. Because we see very, very early in his teaching that Jesus is um, continuing the progress, uh, the progression that we saw in the Old Testament. Um, one simple example of this, but a very powerful example of this, is the way he quotes Isaiah. And I think we've talked about this before. But the way he quotes Isaiah as he announces the coming of God's kingdom in his hometown in Nazareth. Um, so Luke... 4, 16 to 20, was that you, Julie? Yeah, so Julie's just going to read this passage for us. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Most High has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of our God's favour. So if you look at that one um, and then you compare it to the one that I think Jackie is going to read for us, um, just yeah, come forward. Have a look at what's different. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. Thanks, Jackie. So I've cheated and I've put that last bit in italics. But uh, <laughs> but you, you'll notice that um, with that last verse, um, you know, they didn't necessarily have numbered verses in the Torah, but yeah, in the prophets, but that Jesus' quote from Isaiah ends in the middle of a sentence. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty telling. Um, it's not just going. Oh, I'm not going to continue on to the next part of this passage. This, the day of vengeance of the Lord, is is part of the last sentence that Jesus is quoting, and yet he leaves it out. Um, and I think it's quite, quite telling. And if you look at this section of Isaiah, it's the, the last part, Isaiah 56 to 66. You see that this passage is actually a really fantastic summary of the entire section 
of the book. Jesus has chosen this incredibly well. Um, And yet there is also in this section a very powerful strand of vengeance and violence, um, which is, again, summed up in this passage, but left out, excluded by Jesus. And it's not, and this is really important, and we'll look at this again in future weeks, it's, it's not that Jesus in his ministry doesn't talk about judgment, doesn't talk about punishment and God's wrath, and doesn't demonstrate anger himself. He certainly does. But when this language is directed at any particular group, it is almost always directed at the religious leaders and the Pharisees, the powerful many as he stands in solidarity with the marginalised and the victims who he names in in that quote from Isaiah, the poor, the demon-captured, the blind, the oppressed. Um, One of my favourite examples of this is um, a story from John 9. Um, So the story begins and the whole chapter begins with, with Jesus walking along, seeing a man who was blind from birth and even at the beginning of the story, we see Jesus subverting this, this whole understanding of um, people who appeared, just like with Job, people who, who seem to have misery and misfortune in their life must be under some kind of curse because they, his disciples ask him, you know, who has sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. So straight from the beginning of the story, we see a subversion of of an understanding of curse that means that those that are marginalised must be under God's curse and those that are at the centre must be under God's blessing. Um, But as the story unfolds, this man um, is sent to the synagogue to speak with the Pharisees who want to question him about his healing. And... um, they question him so closely and at such great length that eventually, quite sarcastically, he says, why, why are you asking me so many questions? Do you want to become his disciples as well? Um, and so they, they throw him out. And they, they say exactly what the majority, the many, say to the marginalised. Yeah, you were born entirely in sin and you are trying to teach us. They do the exact opposite of what Jesus has already done and they say, you are other. Um, you are a victim because, of, because you deserve it. Um, again, they're just doing exactly what we see critiqued again and again in the Old Testament. Jesus heard that they had driven him out and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do, do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sinned. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. 
again, as is often the case with John, the language is, is complex. Um, but I feel like Jesus here is, is hinting at what we saw in that passage before about Satan being the father of lies and that um, Jesus sees through language to the heart and he sees in the heart of these Pharisees is a desire to use religion to shore up their place at the centre and to, to oppress and to exclude um, and that Jesus is taking the language of judgment that we see throughout the Old Testament and turning it upside down and saying the way that you have used judgment, you say that you see, you say that you see clearly, but the way that you use judgment is based on a lie and I've come to expose that lie and to show that those that you consider to be blind actually do see and that you who claim to see are just demonstrating your blindness. The last little example of this, and it's a story that I love, is when um, the disciples try to prevent children from coming to Jesus. And, um, and it, it describes Jesus as being angry at his disciples. Um, and it's just fantastic to see that, that Jesus' disciple is not... Um, it's not just for religious leaders, not just for, but it can be directed even at his own disciples if he sees them acting out of the same place, acting out of the place of exclusion, acting out of the place where the littlest, the least, the lost are abandoned by God rather than the true objects of God, God's love and mercy. And so at the end of Jesus, um, at the end of his ministry, I guess what I'm saying is that it, it, it feels like in the whole of his ministry, he's setting up the categories for us to understand his death, um, preparing the groundwork for his final unmasking of this process of scapegoating, finally revealing to humanity, as we said before, the things that have been hidden from the foundation of the world. Um, Jesus states that from the beginning, righteous blood has been shed. Talks about all of these murders and says that the Pharisees are responsible for these murders. The Pharisees didn't kill all these people, but but Jesus, they represent who and what was responsible for their deaths, which is religion. From the foundation of the world, Human society was built on this foundation of sacrificial violence. And for Jesus, the Pharisees represent this this mechanism. So to save the world from continuing this violence, Jesus has to complete the work that we talked about last week that began with the Old Testament, to unmask this mechanism of violence. And you see Satan 
being pulled into this passage. And it's so easy for us to see Satan as, when we see Satan as the father of lies, to see it in this very individualistic way. Reading Genesis as, you know, Satan comes to us and tempts us to do individual sins. Um, Whereas in this passage, it really does seem like Jesus is saying that the lie that Satan is primarily responsible for is, is the lie that supports this system of violence and exclusion. Jesus came to save us. And as Christians, we believe this. It's, it's so foundational that we are saved from our sin and saved from Satan. But in these passages, we see that undergirding this notion of sin is the violence that has supported our lives. The way that in our societies we have killed from the foundation to survive and to thrive. And that Satan has hidden this truth from us. And this is what Jesus is pointing out just before his death. To show us the blood on our hands and the lie that the blood has hidden from us. So as we see Jesus on the cross, we need to recognise, just as we saw with Job last week, that on the one hand, there is what everyone thinks is happening. With Job, all of Job's comforters, his wife, all his friends, think that what is happening is that Job is being justly punished. But then there is, on the other hand, what God sees and what God is doing. It's like there are two two stories going on at once, the story on the stage and the story behind the curtain. Um, I actually spent a lot of time in the last two weeks. My form of procrastination is often to write songs. So I um, I wrote a song, which I um, might play next week, but um, a song about these these two stories going on at once, the story... Um, on the stage of the scapegoat, everyone, the Pharisees, um, the Sadducees, all, all the people seeing that Jesus needs to die to restore peace and yet what's really going on in the backstage is the ultimate murder of, of innocence to reveal what's really going on. This backstage story, as we said last week, has been slowly rising to the surface through the Old Testament, ready to to break through, to expose scapegoating violence for the lie that it is. And then finally on the cross, it does break through because finally the God-forsaken victim being sacrificed to restore peace with God is God. I say God, herself or himself, and then I chickened out. So we'll just make it God. In other words, the sacrifice of Jesus was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Violence must cease because when we kill, we just might be killing God. After the crucifixion of Jesus, 
You just can't kill anyone with confidence anymore. You have to deeply question your motives for violence to consider the possibility that the person you have so righteously nailed to the cross just might be God incarnate. So I want to finish um, with a quote that I guess points ahead for us of the kinds of things that we'll be doing with these ideas in the coming weeks. Um, So uh, one of the resources that we've been using for this series is a a book by um, Mark Heim called Saved from Sacrifice, A Theology of the Cross. Um, And I'll just read this quote for us. With the benefit of the long view of history, we can see at least one empirical way that the world has changed in the wake of the gospel. Victims have become visible. No faith is required to recognize this. It is a massive change that we can miss only because it is so encompassing and because we have come to take it for granted. Why is it that Marxism and feminism and the global anti-slavery movement are themselves products of cultures shaped by the biblical tradition. We regularly condemn our societies for failure to do more for the poor or the disadvantages in our own nations or around the world. And we tend to frame this not in terms of positive works of charity deferred, but in terms of justice denied. Where does this concern for victims, even the recognition that they should be seen as victims, come from? Answer? The cross. Praise be to God. Let you sit with that passage for a second. After the cross, the peace of God can never be understood in the same way. And a beautiful new reality is born. A reality that Jesus called the kingdom of God. A kingdom, a human community founded on a non-sacrificial principle. Solidarity with the victim, not unanimity against the victim. Now, If you're anything like me, um, all of this, the last four weeks, the stuff this morning, uh, probably raise all sorts of questions for you. Uh, Questions about the implications of this for our lives as followers of Jesus. Um, But but even before that, uh, questions about how this view, Gerard's view of what's happening on the cross, fits with the other ideas you might have, I might have, or have read or heard of about what is happening on the cross. And even more importantly, how this fits with other parts of Scripture. You know, when we read about images of ransom, images of um, substitution, when we read of images of um, sacrificial exchange, um, how do we understand them in the light of the idea of Jesus' death being um, the unveiling of the unjustness of this sacrificial system. Uh, Luckily, I'm not going to (laughs) answer 
luckily for me, I'm not going to answer those questions today, but they are questions that we want to address after Easter. Um, with the goal of, of trying to really integrate and ground this stuff in the day-to-day of our lives in a way that is freeing and life-giving and in a way that leaves us with a, a deep sense, and this is, this is the crucial thing, yeah? a deep sense that what happened on the cross is good news. That's where we began and that's where I want to finish today uh, and where we want to, to pick up on again after, after Easter. Uh, this is not academic stuff for the sake of it. This is stuff that Shane and I have wrestled with and that we decided we wanted to share with you because you know, we desperately want to be a place where we feel passionately that what happened on the cross is good news. Um, good news that we know how to share, that we have a means of sharing that makes sense to us. Um, so in the meantime, uh, if you do have any questions, we're not going to, I'm not going to open it up this morning, but because um, uh, there'll be lots of time for questions as we move forward. But if you do have questions or concerns about what we've been talking about over the last four weeks, um, then please feel free to email us. Um, Ideally, with a kind and loving tone, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, yeah, just ideas about um, application of this or how it might play out. Um, Any response or reflection, please feel free to email us. Um, It will help us in in our preparation for the coming weeks and give us an opportunity to respond in a more personal way to you. Um... I guess the other thing is that we're keen to cultivate a community with multiple lines of communication. You know, speaking up on a Sunday morning works for some people but not for others. And so it's good to have um, other ways to, to respond, other ways to start conversations. Um, but um, if it's any comfort, the last, uh, <laughs> the last two weeks has been quite an insane couple of weeks for me as I've read obsessively... Um, stuff around Gerard and critiques and just the whole issue of um, that what is happening on the cross. Uh, it's, it's one of those things which for much of your Christian life you just go, well, Jesus died for my sins and that is as far as you need to go um, and then you're exposed to an explanation for that uh, which you perhaps wrestle with and then it's too hard and you stop thinking about it again. And so the last two weeks has been um, a a quite full-on experience of me re-engaging with those questions, and I recognise how how many questions this stuff can raise. So feel free to share them with us. Um, I'm going to finish with a prayer. Oh, I've left a prayer in my bag, I think. Here it is. Um, So last week and again this week, I just want to finish with um, one of the the Lent prayers from Tia. Um, This is the prayer for this week um, by the Reverend Reverend Carolyn Francis. So Kaz is moonlighting as Assistant Associate Minister at Collins Street Baptist Church. I didn't know she'd got that job, so that's good. Um, I'm just going to read this to finish and as our benediction. God of grace and hope, 
Fill us with a deep desire to bring the joyful vision of your shalom into into today's world. Energize our living, serving and loving with your spirit of life so that we welcome all people into your future of justice, peace and flourishing. In the name of Christ. Amen. Have a good week.